We have dived headfirst into the physics of pitch. We have learned how the pitches of a scale or key are generated from the tonic note of that key. The notes of a key are the tonic's overtones or the relationships between those overtones coming to life, coming into a life of their own, becoming notes rather than overtones, which in turn have their own overtones. As we've begun to explore, the notes in a key possess something like an internal gravity. The main gravitational force, so to speak, is to return us to the tonic, but there are other pulls at play. We saw how the supertonic, for example, other than having an inherent pull to resolve to the tonic, also has a secondary tension we might resolve by following it with the dominant of the scale. Why was this? What is the supertonic to the dominant? The perfect fifth of the perfect fifth. Brilliant. It was the fifth of the fifth. The supertonic is the fifth of the dominant. No? So that creates a gravity pulling it back to the dominant. So even though we are, of course, not in the key of the dominant, but of the tonic, the dominant offers us some resolution from the perspective of the supertonic. So this gravity, so to speak, is what is commonly referred to as musical tension, this impetus to resolve notes to other notes and eventually back to the tonic. We might also call this musical expectation. We actually expect the notes to resolve to the tonic because our brains understand that they are born of the tonic. And music can be described in very general terms in this way, as a play between satisfying and violating expectations. Some of those expectations are inherent in certain elements of the music, such as within the key. Other expectations we create within the music itself. So here's some of the first thing I ever composed for violin. If I play these first few seconds of melody and stop, where do you expect this to go? Where do you imagine it going? If you had to continue this melody humming, whistling or, or singing. What do you expect to come next? So this again. Yeah. Yes, you don't consciously think about it when listening to the music but if you do stop to think about it you realize you expect this initial musical phrase to repeat itself but in fact it doesn't So when we hear what really happens, it's a little like, oh, so you're saying that, are you? It sounds more interesting because it's slightly unexpected. And only slightly. We've just begun the piece of music, so haven't managed to create great expectations yet in regards to melody. We can notice consciously this play of satisfying and violating expectations listening to any piece of music. Simply listen and pause the song anywhere and compare how you might imagine the music to continue with how it actually does continue. Generally speaking, the more popular or poppy the music, the more our expectations are satisfied in ways we can easily foresee. More complicated music manages to juggle keeping us following the music with constantly violating our expectations in unexpected ways. So pitch, of course, is not the only thing in music that generates expectations. We see, looking 
at this excerpt of melody that pitch is not the only element of importance. There is a whole other realm of music which we are yet to look at, the realm of time. Time includes things like the respective length of the notes in a melody and the beat that runs through it. So the phenomenon of pitch we might conceptualize as a vertical thing. When we play a note, whether the note is low-pitched or high-pitched is, as we've seen, about how many vibrations occur at once, which we measure in vibrations per second, in hertz. But of course, vibrations per second is just how we measure pitch. The note doesn't need a whole second to be produced, just a moment, no matter how short that moment. Pitch is about how many vibrations are stacked on top of one another in one go, so to speak. If we play more vibrations per second, the note doesn't take more time to play, it just sounds higher pitched. So we can think of pitch as a vertical phenomenon. The passage of time, on the other hand, we can conceive as a horizontal phenomenon. In life, we don't always experience pitch, but sitting in silence, we do still experience time. Just as it appears to be for our physical existence, time is much more important, or at least much more fundamental, to music than pitch or tonality is. You don't need a pitched instrument to make music. You can make music just by playing with time, by manipulating time with percussion, for example. You can create very complicated, interesting and engaging music without the use of tonality at all. Not only is time more essential or fundamental to music than pitch, but it is also much more essential to our expectations in music. The regular division of time, so what we call beat, is the most essential element in getting us on board with music, in getting us following it. We might think of this as the train tracks of the music, bum 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 bum, as we go over the tracks. In the same way that a regular beat or rhythm helps us settle into the train ride and enjoy the view, beat does a similar thing in music. The beat underpins the music and we expect it to be steady and constant. So if we count steadily, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, we are counting in what we call common time in music, which is why it is much more common to see musicians counting to four before they start playing than to three or six, for example. One, two, three, four is common time. The space from the first one to the next number one, as we repeat this structure, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, is called a measure. It's a consistent measure of time throughout the piece. One, two, three, four. And just before we go back to one, that's one measure. And each number is a beat. So a pattern of beats runs through the music and creates the most solid and stable musical expectation for us. We expect to hear the pattern of one, two, three, four, and it's what helps us plug into the music and follow it right from the outset. So whilst we're using numbers to count beats in this way, like how musicians count their way into music, of course, music itself doesn't count its beats with numbers. So how do we count time in music? What makes one beat or pulse a number one and another a number four? How did we decide that what we are doing is counting one to four on repeat rather than just counting one, two, three, four, five, six, for example? So before we take a closer look at the answers to these questions, I want to show you that you already understand beat intuitively. So I'm going to start on a random beat, a random number, so not number one. So not on the first beat, not on number one. And you will stop me at some point when I'm landing on one again. So, dum 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 
Okay, there, right, good. So that was number one. I actually started on the fourth beat rather than the first. Dum, 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 dum. But that didn't confuse you because the fact is that not all beats are created equal. The first beat is the strongest. It carries the strongest stress. Dum, 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 dum. Which is what helps our minds understand not to continue counting to number five when we hear that strong beat, but rather to restart the count from number one. So all beats are not created equal in the same way that not all scale degrees are created equal. The first beat we've seen is the strongest beat in the same way that the tonic note of a scale is the most structurally important note. All other notes relate back to the tonic. We might say that all future beats of a measure relate back to the first beat as if they were echoes of it. So the first beat is the strongest beat, but we also have a secondary strong beat in common time or what we might call a medium beat. If we continue drawing parallels between key or scale and beat, we would expect this medium beat to be positioned where in the measure? After the tonic, which is the strongest or second most important note of a scale? The supertonic. No, sorry, the dominant. The dominant, the perfect fifth. And where is this positioned in regards to the whole scale? In the middle. In the middle. So to find this medium beat, we'll do the same thing we did to find the perfect fifth, the dominant. We'll divide the measure in half like we did the octave. So what is the halfway point between one and four? Two. So it's not two. Even though half of four is two, it is of course the third beat that marks the beginning of the second half of the measure. Just like how even though we have eight degrees in a scale, it's the fifth degree that marks the halfway point the beginning of the second half of the octave rather than the fourth, which would of course be half of eight. So we have a secondary or medium emphasis on the third beat. Beats two and four are weak. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Dum, 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 dum. So we see that in time, as well as in pitch, in our horizontal as well as in our vertical realms, the important concept of doubling or halving returns to center stage. The beat in the middle of the measure, the one we find by halving the measure, is also a special beat. Do you want to try producing a common time beat now with numbers or any sound you like? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Are you putting a... I think you... I, I, I think I can hear that you're putting a secondary emphasis. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, I was consciously thinking about splitting into two and having one, two, three, four. I just wanted to check. <laughs> I thought, I felt I could hear it, but I wanted to check. Well done. So the third beat is the furthest thing we have from any first beat, just like the dominant is the furthest degree from the tonic, and in this sense, it is the most opposed or opposite to the first beat. But this third beat carrying a special emphasis, is also the most similar to the first beat. And so again, we encounter this relationship of similar and opposite, just as we did between the tonic and the dominant. Time is doing horizontally over beats what pitch does vertically over scale degrees. So that's the structure of common time. Four beats, the first beat is strongest, the third beat is also strong, and the other two beats are weak. If the third beat were as strong as the first beat, what would happen? Yeah, it'd be one, two, one, two. Exactly, it would make you start counting again. Well done. 
So hearing a beat structure like this engages us instantly and creates a deep unspoken expectation to continue hearing the same structure, which the music will satisfy and violate as it sees fit. This expectation is so intrinsic that a common problem for anyone practicing music are earworms when you go for a walk. If you happen to walk to the beat of a piece of music you are practicing, you might have to change pace to manage to get it out of your head. And that music wanting to live might pull your pace back into its own so it can continue using your brain as a stereo system, effectively hijacking the seat of your consciousness as if it were a consciousness in itself. Our reactions to the division of time into beat are so visceral, not least because our bodies are full of biological clocks, and even our actions are full of beat and rhythm. If we try to run without it, we'll fall down. If we try to chew without it, we'll bite our tongues. Our brains are also constantly surveying beat and rhythm in our surroundings to mediate our stress levels. If you hear a steady rhythm, you are likely to filter it out and get on with whatever you are doing. You might even find that it calms you or helps you concentrate, which is why people used to have ball clickers on their desks. Well, some still do. If you hear a rhythm get faster, you are likely to be alarmed. Is something running towards you? If you hear an altogether irregular rhythm, you might suspect a deliberating being nearby pottering about. This is all hardwired in the brain. For this reason, beat and rhythm can even have transcendental effects. They can change our state of consciousness, be used in therapy, and even cause hallucinations. The beautiful and fascinating Zar music, for example, is designed to beat out the jinn, the malevolent spirits thought to cause disease and misfortune in Islamic and pre-Islamic cultures. I had no idea what this music was meant for when I was going twice a week to see it when I used to live in Cairo. When someone asked me why I went so often, I answered, I feel it beats the devil out of me. A devil I felt roused by that stressful city every day. And there I learned, this was the point of Zan music, to beat out the malevolent jinn. If the devil is dissonance, as it may well be a metaphor for, as we saw with the diabolic diminished fifth, maybe that is what these complicated rhythms of Zara music managed to beat out of us. The streams of mental dissonance, limiting habits and chattering internal voices, and what is habit but expectation and satisfaction of that expectation, eventually becoming addiction. Rhythm-enhanced trances can help rid the mind of all of this. So whilst the world of time, of beat and rhythm, may seem far less enticing than the more colourful or mystical world of tone, that is only at an initial glance. Musical time is as magical and as powerful as pitch.